And let's uh, continue to move forward here for some more perspective on how this conflict is shaking out in many different ways. We are very, very honored, as always, to be joined here by Dr. Vijay Prashad, the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute. Vijay, thank you so much for being back with us. Well, I'm here now, and I'm happy to be with you. So. <laughs> Well, Vijay, we're very happy to have you for sure. I, I mean, you know, uh, maybe let's uh, get your perspective on this. I mean, we've seen this, you know, I don't know what else to call it, but theater at the United Nations over the past uh, few days. And it seems that nothing will really come from the United Nations because there is no consensus around the idea of a ceasefire. It seems that many countries are trying, or not many, the United States and the United Kingdom trying to block that. I mean, what, what do you make of this? Because I think one of the contexts of, of this entire conflict that people are saying is, well, it's happening in the context of a multipolar world, the move away from a unipolar world, but it does feel a little bit like business as usual in terms of how the quote-unquote international community addresses the plight of the Palestinians. Well, you know, it's it's a very difficult situation. Um, you know, lines have been drawn and have been drawn decades ago. Uh, you can't expect the lines to be moving uh, around the question of Palestine. You know, there's a there's a pretty hard block with the United States, uh, many European countries standing firmly with the Israelis. I mean, you know, um, many of them, Maloney of Italy, Biden of the United States, went rushing to Tel Aviv. Um, it's very hard to crack that block. On the other side, you know, there is, of course, uh, some different dimensions, which is that the fact that the Chinese and Russians vetoed a UN resolution, which said that sponsored by the United States, which said that Israel has a right to defend itself. I mean, the very fact that the United States put that resolution forward shows you um, that they were just testing the Russians and the Chinese to veto it. And there came the veto. You know, that's not where I think the major changes are taking place. Um, I think there's some pretty big changes happening in the Arab world. Pretty big changes. Um, you know, at the behest of of I think several of the Arab countries, nine of them have issued a statement today, October 26th. Um, that's Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, and Morocco. Um, I mean, this is a pretty interesting statement. They're calling for an immediate ceasefire, an end to the death of civilians and so on. They're asking for the United Nations to intervene one way or the other. I, I didn't even see this during caste led, you know, if I'm honest with you. Um, I was watching with great interest the interview given by Queen Rania, not this Queen Rania, but the one from Jordan. Um, you know, yes, Rania Abdullah II, <laughs> the wife of Abdullah II. Um, she did an interview with Christian Amanpour on CNN. Very instructive interview. You see, when somebody like Queen Rania goes and does an interview, it's highly scripted. You know, there are 10 advisors, 20 of them in the room. They've gone over with a fine tooth comb what she's allowed to say because she's, in fact, speaking for the monarchy, for King Abdullah II. And man, I don't know if you watched that interview, but Queen Rania mm -hmm. demolished Christian Amarpur's attempt to speak in the name of Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, she said the conflict didn't start on October 7th. She said, don't keep focusing on Hamas. Why do you keep wanting me to condemn the Palestinians and stand with the Israelis? You know, she said there's apartheid, there's dispossession, there's oppression. Um, 
this language from Queen Rania is very, very new for me. Haven't seen this kind of language, you know, forthright, long interview, kept going at Christian Amanpour, speaking to a mainstream Western audience, saying that, you know, we, we in the region, I mean, this is quite important. There are two countries that opened up the normalization with Israel, Egypt and Jordan. These are the two, uh, Egypt first, Jordan second. You'll notice that President Sisi, hardly an independent thinker or even an independent actor, he's got one leash that runs to Washington, D.C., another leash that runs to the Saudi royal family. Uh, Sisi says, hey, listen, we, we're not going to allow the Palestinians into Egypt uh, because that's actually going to mean that you get your, you know, your three-state solution, um, the, the states of Egypt, Lebanon, and Jordan. We're not interested in that. And on the other side, you know, large demonstration in Amman, which I'm sure has moved um, Abdullah II. He's probably worried about what's going to happen yeah. in Jordan. Queen Rania comes on TV and says, hey, listen, we stand with the Palestinians. She has to reflect the reality, even though it's a monarchy. They're afraid. You know, they don't want to see this cascading rebellion inside Jordan. Um, I'm actually looking for the cracks here. I'm looking for the moment when perhaps King Abdullah, inspired by those demonstrations, maybe pushed by his Palestinian wife, is going to say something like, hey, listen, Tel Aviv, this peace agreement you have with us, maybe we're going to rethink that. Um, I'm actually looking at that. I'm also looking for when... Sheikh Hassan Nasrallah speaks. You know, Nasrallah does a weekly um, television show where he talks about all kinds of things. You know, he talk, he's even talked about uh, television serials and various things. Last three weeks, Nasrallah has been silent. There have been photographs of Nasrallah meeting the leaders of Hamas and Islamic Jihad. And even that meeting is not sure when it happened. You know, I've been around the Hezbollah people long enough to know that they sometimes hold meetings, take photographs and hold the photographs to release at the appropriate time, largely because they know that the Israelis might pick up where the meeting took place and bomb that location. You know, they're very clever with their security. But Nasrallah is silent and people are saying, what will Nasrallah say? You see, it's quite clear, and I'll end with this, it's quite clear that Nasrallah is only going to speak when Hezbollah is going to act. And thus far, one rocket here, one rocket there, one rocket from Syria and so on, that's not an assault. That's, you know, indisciplined Hezbollah fighters maybe or other factions. It's somebody in Syria just firing a rocket. Nasrallah is going to speak when Nasrallah is ready to act. And thus far, it seems Hezbollah is holding its horses, waiting to see when the Israelis will move their tanks into Gaza. I think that's the moment we'll get a speech from Nasrallah that's going to be a declaration of war. Israel is going to be in serious trouble. Well, I'm hoping that this is the one time where I really hope that Nasrallah doesn't speak. I'm, I'm frightened for when he does, because it will be that speech of we're going to war. And we know that one of, well, one of Hezbollah's red lines, it's not even necessarily the ground invasion. It's if Hamas is threatened existentially. Uh, and so far, they're not. I mean, despite, obviously, the horrific carpet bombing of Gaza, me and Eugene were just talking about how Israel hasn't made any military advances. They're just dropping bombs on children right now, which is a very easy thing to do, sadly. Um, 
But it, and it's just a very emotional temper tantrum style response. And as we all wait for this looming ground invasion, I think you make so many important points about the cracks in the region and how important that is. And the fact that you have so many countries across the region that are essentially, you could say, client states of America. I mean, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, um, a lot of these Gulf states, um, maybe not, you know, not entirely client states, but mostly like, you know, in the pockets of the U.S. I mean, the Saudis, they're not on board with this. None of them are. They're not only, you know, um, they're not only cranking up the rhetoric a little bit in ways that they never have um, and saying things about the Palestinian cause in ways that we haven't heard them say. They're also you have the Saudis meeting with the Iranians about this. That's new. Um, you have the Saudis like really refusing to get on board. The normalization with Israel for now is not going to happen. Uh, the Qataris are not just doing whatever the Americans say, though they're always a little bit, you know, independent, but more so. And so I just want to place this in the context of or want to ask you if we can place this in the context of not just these very, you know, pro-U.S. countries reacting in their own self-interest. In the case of Egypt, there's no way they're going to allow a branch of the Muslim Brotherhood to have a base in the Sinai and have all these Palestinians in the Sinai. They know once they're there, they're never leaving, right? Like you said. Uh, the Jordanians have a security risk too. And also, I just will mention, I'm sure you saw that video in Egypt in Tahrir Square in a state-sanctioned protest where people were chanting for Nasrallah to bomb Tel Aviv. I'm sure that didn't sit very well with Sisi either. Um, but you have all these cracks and you have all these countries acting somewhat in a self-interested way that doesn't align with the U.S. And so I'm curious if we can maybe place this in the context of a multipolar world in the sense that it's not just the U.S. hegemon anymore. There is a little bit more space to maneuver than there was five or ten years ago. Maybe that's wishful thinking. But that does speak to the fact, I think, that you do have rising powers like Russia and China. Whether Russia and China are doing anything or not on this issue almost doesn't even matter because the countries in this region just seem to have a little bit more space. What do you think about that? Well, the day after the um, October 7th, on October 8th, I believe, the Iranian president, President Rais, had a direct phone call with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, the effective ruler of Saudi Arabia. This is really important because, to my mind, it's the first direct communication between the heads of government of Iran and Saudi Arabia since 1979. And all that they talked about was Gaza and what was happening in Gaza and how they both jointly condemned what was happening in Gaza. You see, I actually don't believe that um, Saudi Arabia is, could actually be easily described any longer as a client state. It's been quite insubordinate in many respects. Um, it's deals with the Chinese. Um, it's talk about Saudi Vision 2030, um, Mohammed bin Salman's decision to enter the BRICS alongside Iran, alongside Egypt, which as you know, is really getting more and more to be a client state of Saudi Arabia than a client state of the United States. Things are really shifting quite rapidly. And just as the war in Ukraine was an accelerant for some of the shifts, this war in Gaza is an accelerant for other shifts. Now, hard to exactly predict what's going to occur. But here's what I want to say, and, and here's the chilling part of it. You know, Lloyd Austin, U.S. Defense Secretary, was on ABC News where he talked about the reason why they've sent a number of senior U.S. generals to go and assist the Israelis. 
And the reason he gave, which, which really, it just struck me as insane, is he said he himself had been in charge of central command during the so-called war against ISIS. And he had overseen the wars in Mosul and Raqqa. And he sent the general, the lieutenant general, who was the one who ran the war in Mosul to go and help the Israelis with this ground assault in Gaza. Now, I want you to remember the war in Mosul killed about 11,000 civilians, 11,000. And a couple of things. One, ISIS in Mosul only had two years to prepare their defenses. You know, Hamas has been inside Gaza preparing for a conflict like this since about 2007, when the medieval siege of Gaza, Gaza begins. And secondly, I remember um, tens of thousands of Mosul residents running into the countryside before the U.S. bombardment started. The Palestinians have no countryside to run into. So if the United States is willing to repeat Mosul in Gaza, you're not going to get 10, 11,000 dead. You're going to get 20, 30, 40,000 people killed just like this. And if that happens, I'm telling you, the Arab states will not be able to contain their populations. And that is the reason why today nine Arab states sent that statement to the United Nations. They will not be able to contain their populations. No Arab, and, and forget about the rest of the world for a minute, because I think countries will not be able to contain their populations from Ireland all the way down to Australia, from you know Japan. out. The populations are going to be on the street furious. If we watch the Israelis massacre Palestinian civilians, not... 500 a day, 800 a day, but 10,000 a day, 15,000 a day. That is just going to be something that the Arab populations won't stand for. You know, I'd like to remind General Sisi, and I hope he watches your program. But <laughs> after, the, after the defeat of the Egyptian army in 1948 at the hands of the Israelis and their British helpers, after the defeat of that army, inside the Egyptian army, there was a great sense of demoralization. Out of that demoralization emerged the very great Gamal Abdul Nasser and the free officers. You know, if the Egyptians are going to sit by and allow the Israelis to massacre tens of thousands of Palestinians, something is going to break in Egypt. You know, Sisi doesn't control everything. Something will break and these governments know it. That's why Aqaba, the meeting in February, to bring normalization to Israel. Aqaba is finished. Sharm al-Sheikh in March of this year, finished. No more normalization. The Arab street is not going to take it. And I think that's the reason why these nine governments have said, hey, listen, you got to have a ceasefire. They're not just thinking about the Palestinians, guys. They're thinking about themselves because they are going to be on the dustbin of history if they don't act now to somehow block the Israeli advance. Is this enough? Of course not. This ceasefire is not enough, but it's a start. I mean, the Arab people are going to now clamor for an end to the occupation. In fact, that's why I say this particular period is an accelerant. You know, no more two-state solution. That's not going to be attractive to people. They're going to call for an end to an occupation. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think that's the reason why we're seeing Saudi Arabia called Iran, these nine countries joined together and begged the United Nations to move a ceasefire. If they don't, they're history. Well, 
greetings to everyone watching in the new administrative capital in Cairo. But let me just ask you this briefly, uh, VJ, before we let you go. Uh, You mentioned 1948. Of course, one of the most outspoken voices in 1948 was uh, Mr. Nehru, of course, the prime minister of India, who I believe voted against uh, in the UN, against the creation of Israel. Now, of course, we're seeing Mr. Modi, the prime minister of India, become one of the maybe the only really major champion in the global south of Israel. Uh, Give us some context for for that and, and, and... well, there it is. Well, you know, it's a long story and we don't have much time to get into it. But the short answer is the Hindu right has since 1948, in fact, been big backers of Israel. At the same time, just as the Christian right in the United States, they are deeply anti-Semitic. I mean, you know, the Hindu right's great uh, intellectual, Goldwalker, wrote a book in the 1950s saying that the Hindu right needs to do to the Muslims of India what the Germans did to the Jews. These are the same people who are great champions of Israel. Um, This is an old story. It's a kind of anti-Muslim alliance between the Hindu right and the Zionists in Israel. But let's not exaggerate this. There will be undercurrents in India. You know, India has one of the largest Muslim populations. It has also a very large a population of people who have great feeling for the Palestinians. There are cracks even inside India. Modi can say whatever he wants to say uh, on the surface, you know, sending his, his greetings to the Israeli state and so on. But this is not going to be the only voice out of India because we're going to see more cracks in the mirror. And Modi anyway um, on foreign policy is caught between two stools. India requires the Gulf Arab states to balance out uh, with its uh, with China on its eastern flank, northeastern flank. India needs Saudi Arabia, needs its relationship with the Arab Emirates and so on. So it's itself going to be caught in some of this churning. I wouldn't exaggerate Modi's great love affair with Netanyahu. I don't think India can ride that bull very far. If it does, it's going to crash the Indian economy because the Saudis might just turn around and say, hey, listen, we're not going to sell you oil at a concessionary rate anymore. Dr. Vijay Prashad, Executive Director of the Tricontinental Institute and one of the hosts of Give the People What They Want from People's Dispatch, which you can see tomorrow morning at 10.30 a.m. on the People's Dispatch YouTube page. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Freedom Side.